Knock, knock. Knock, knock. We're not in. Brother cardinals, from this day forward, we're not in, no matter who's knocking on our door. We're in, but only for God. From this day forward, everything that was wide open is going to be closed. Evangelization, we've already done it. Ecumenicalism, been there, done that. Tolerance, doesn't live here anymore. It's been evicted. It vacated the house for the new tenant who has diametrically opposite tastes in decorating. We've been reaching out to others for years now. It's time to stop. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Cut to Black, a podcast about how we experience television. My name is Sean T. Collins, and joining me, as always, is my illustrious co-host, Gretchen Felker-Martin, and today, horror author. I stepped on you already. We're out of practice, Gretchen. We're out of practice. Oh, I know. I'm feeling rusty, but I'm I'm excited to be back in the saddle and already mixing my metaphors. <laughs> well, today we will be discussing the address to the cardinals from the young pope. Uh, see, well. I was going to say season one because the new Pope exists, but it's technically the only season of the young Pope episode five. It's a pivotal, pivotal scene in the show, which is frankly, I think a masterpiece by Paolo Sorrentino. I feel like I'm probably not alone on this podcast and thinking that <laughs> you are not as far as I'm concerned. This is one of the best shows ever made. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's hard to question, honestly. Yeah. And that's even with like a relative huge misstep of an episode that, that gets into some weird colonialist stuff. Yeah. It does have a dud right there towards the, the back half of the season. But even with that, it just, it doesn't matter. Even in that episode, there's enough strong stuff that it's like still just an absolute joy to watch. It's it's really remarkable. Uh, yeah, it's an incredible piece of art. It's it's you know what it is. It's incredibly sincere. Yes, and yet also extremely cool. Yes, which is an impossible needle to thread. It's very difficult to do, and I think what I've always said about the show is that it pulls off its little magic trick by doing something very, very different, but also very similar to what Paul Verhoeven did in Starship Troopers. You know, Starship Troopers very famously, I think at this point, proceeds from the idea that this fascist society exists and what kind of war movie would they make to entertain themselves if that society existed and Starship Troopers is the result. Now, the young Pope is about a, a young American cardinal who becomes Pope and kind of goes rogue and the efforts of his various underlings to contain him. But there's also 
frankly, supernatural stuff woven throughout it. And I think the idea behind the show is like, okay, let's make a show that proceeds from the idea that Catholicism is right. Yes. They don't sand down any of the rough edges or any of the things that make Catholicism so unpleasant to people, including many, many Catholics. And, you know, certainly including the audience of like a prestige television show on HBO. But it also includes the stuff that's like, it, it takes this, it takes the spectacle seriously. It takes the, the art and the pageantry and the, and the sensuality of Catholicism seriously. And then it has that added step of like, there are miracles sometimes. Yeah. It's, it's a step beyond taking Catholicism at face value. It's, um, it's like a gesture toward the primordial truth behind Catholicism. Like what if these people really are tapping the vein? What if this is, is the place in human belief and practice that actually connects to the Godhead and the result is fucking chilling. I mean, it's, it's awe inspiring as, as Catholic ritual can be, but it's extremely misanthropic and cruel, which is, is codified best in Pius the 13th's inaugural address to the college of Cardinals. Right. And we should say that this takes place at the almost the exact midpoint of the season. And it's been put off throughout the show. Like it becomes a plot point for several episodes that he has not, even though he's been elected, car, uh, excuse me, Pope, Lenny Bellardo is the guy's real name. He goes by Pope Pius XIII, the, the Pope Pius XIII, excuse me. Even though he's been elected the Pope, he has not chosen to address his brother Cardinals yet. And is he dithering? Does he not know what he's going to say? Is he, he's kind of a mystery. And that was really why he was elected in the first place was because they felt that as someone with a comparatively low profile relative to some of the other leading candidates, he, he could would be effectively be, controlled, right? He would be pliable. That turns out at this point, we already know to dramatically not be the case, but doctrinally, we know he's conservative, you know, I mean, he's a, he's a Cardinal in the Catholic church, you know, chances are good. He's conservative in a lot of ways, right. but he's also, you know, he, he, he's, he's contrasted with, they don't mention him by name, but he contrasts himself with Pope, Pope Francis, the, the current kind of friendly Pope. And this is where his doctrine of the faith is articulated to his fellow faithful for the first time. And it's a nightmare. It's, it's the closest point of comparison I can come up with is like Luke listening to the emperor on the Death Star's observation bridge. Yes. Oh, he's, he's literally laying out a philosophy for committing harm to the fabric of the world. Yep. You know what? Now that you mention it, I wonder if that you know res residual elements of my love of the Return of the Jedi 
have something to do with why I love this scene. You've got a, an emperor and a throne. You've got this kind of ooh spooky music going on behind him. And he's just talking that shit. And everyone has I mean, to sit there and take it. The emperor's guards and courtiers are, are very Catholic. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And this also is the young Pope at its most spectacular. You know, yeah. I mean, his, his entrance into the hall, like literally born aloft on a litter with ostrich feathers and palm fronds framing him. And he's dressed in more money than we will ever have in our lives. Mm-hmm. And he, his, his robe is so huge and stiff and he's wearing this enormous medieval Pope's crown that he, that he yeah, ordered. The tiara. Right. Right. That he ordered specifically from a museum. He demanded it back because he knew that it would basically strike fear into the hearts of criminals everywhere. <laughs> like he's Batman. And when you put it all together and he has, you know, he's, he's played by Jude law, uh, an extremely handsome guy with like really marvelous malevolence in his eyes. And he looks to me like an illustration from Alice in Wonderland. I always thought, yes. you know, like there's something 100%. humpy dumpty ish about him or, yeah, or he's encased yes. in this, this uh, cocoon. And it works because the whole point of the, speech is that from now on the catholic church must become inaccessible it must become distant and remote and unfriendly it's not our job to reach out to other faiths or to accommodate sinners really in any way he demands i mean he says he he demands fanaticism because that's what love is love is fanaticism right. and anything love less than that measured in numbers, it can only be measured in intensity. Right. And that's it. And he he even has a because he has this great sense of the theatrical as a character, not only does he come out in the most elaborate Pope costume possible, he also has had built a gold a tiny golden door that is at the end opposite end of the Sistine Chapel from where he's sitting. And that's the the idea is like this tiny little door that all the cardinals can see. That's the only way in now. We're not throwing the doors wide. We're not creating like a. It's not a big tent party. You know, we are creating you. one exactly one way for you to get down on your hands and knees and crawl to us like a worm. Yep. Which and if you and, don't do that, you will be stuck in hell. And then, in fact, the the speech ends with his mentor and his best friend and his arch rival within the Cardinals all approaching him and kissing his foot. Yeah. Which what an incredible sexual charge that scene has. Woo Lord, you betcha. Yeah. It always strikes me the like weaponized effeminacy of the Catholic priesthood. You have these kind of degendered men dressed in all this incredible finery going through these highly sexual rituals with each other that are all about abjection and degradation and touch. And of course they're all celibate on pain of hell. 
Mm-hmm. It's, it's so fucking just dripping, you know? And this is before you even get to the image of the cruci- you know, the half-naked crucified Christ, which doesn't really enter into this episode, or really that much into the iconography of the series, if I recall correctly. But Yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't know that we really ever... We see a, the Pieta. Sure, sure. But that's, you know, the, the crucifix is absent. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a very... Well, I suppose the other half of this, the whole sequence, is that it opens... <laughs> With LMFAO's sexy and I know it as he gets dressed for the speech. The first time that I watched that, I I think I was watching it live. mm -hmm. I literally pumped my fist and shouted, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I I lost my fucking mind when I first saw that and heard that. The most perfect deployment of that song in film history. Because I, I have to say, yeah, because now you hear it in like a million like, you know, commercials for Sing 2 from DreamWorks Animation or whatever the hell. But I always liked the song from the very first time I heard it. I kind of was flipping through the radio and it came through halfway. So I wasn't, you know, I didn't recognize any of the voices yet. I just heard girl look at that body and then I work out. And I remember thinking the part where he says I work out. was <laughs> so funny. and it's and like very and, funny. And it, it's in a knowing way, you know, like the, the, the song is is very aware of how dopey it is. Right. It's winking at itself. Right. Right. And and that's like half of the humor of the young Pope is just from the title on down. You know, I mean, I, I don't remember if people recall, but like when the show was announced, it was a meme. Oh, it was a huge mimetic thing. People were making all kinds of jokes about how there's a Pope, but he's young. Right. And then and it, it had the audacity to be incredible. I right. mean, <laughs> it ran knowing, circles around even the best Twitter joke. Knowing what little I do about Sorrentino, I, I would not put it out of the realm of possibility that he did it on purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's, there's no better marketing than making other people come up with your marketing for you. That's a good point. And then by the time it comes out, it's become so abstracted that they're ready for any experience. And boy, is that what they got. Jesus, God, I know. The way that this show just flits between, I mean, genres even. Mm -hmm. In this scene alone, you go from what is essentially a music video where you've got all these rapid cuts and like jarring kind of anachronistic images like the Pope smoking with sunglasses on and then into this like the stately towering costume drama and then into this monstrous villain monologue. There's a, there's an incredible flexibility to the young Pope. It draws from so many sources. It does. I mean, we were just talking about before we started recording that there's a scene earlier in the episode where the Pope faces down again, his arch rival Cardinal Voyello, who's kind of been like the man behind the throne for several popes. And he's been trying to blackmail Pius the 13th. And he, there's just no blackmailing him and the yeah, music that they, the yeah. And the music that they use is the same uh, Bartok piece that Kubrick used in the scene in the shining 
where Danny walks into Jack's bedroom and he's just sitting there on his bed, kind of staring into space and he comforts Danny in the most menacing way imaginable. You right. know, I mean, this is lifted directly from a horror film. Right. And Sorrentino is, is telling us as, as plainly as you can, who the monster is. Right. But you then, know what's yeah. amazing? Speaking yeah, of the music in the show, I was, I was looking uh, through the soundtrack for this episode before we recorded. And what I found looking through clips on YouTube is that uniformly, no matter what clip from the young Pope you post, the comments will be full of Catholics who are like, if only we had a Pope like this. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, Jesus Christ, man. <laughs> oh, boy. Way to prove the point. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's like the Catholic equivalent of uh, they don't make music like this anymore on literally every <laughs> single song from before five years ago. <laughs> yeah. And then I also want to say that elsewhere in this episode, which is extremely upsetting and, 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 and borrows f- from horror films. Uh, he also orders a kangaroo to jump and it does. Yeah. And, and it makes him smile. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, it's one of the sweetest moments in anything I can think of. It's, yeah. It's incredibly sincere and beautiful. Um, and this episode is also full of his childhood memories. And it opens with him and his childhood best friend going and, and running around Rome in their track suits to try and recapture that. Right. And, and even one thing I had kind of erased from my own mind, I had forgotten about it is that in between sexy and I know it. And then, you know, he's led into the uh, Sistine chapel and he kind of sits with his eyes closed and he has a memory or is it a memory? Is it a dream? Is it a, a combination of both of being dropped off at the Catholic orphanage where he was raised by his hippie parents? And as a little boy telling himself, okay, I'm going to close my eyes. And when I open them and turn around, uh, my parents will still be there. My mom and dad will still be there. And then of course yeah. they're not, you know? Yeah. Just, just instantly you can, from that you can extrapolate his entire worldview and the way that he wants to interpret the church and to force others to experience the church. God must be absent for the world in the same way that his parents were absent for him. Right. And everyone has to make the same grueling journey that he did, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is interesting because he has a tremendous amount of insight into the way that priests retreat from the world and are afraid of it and are too cowardly to engage in the agony of love. But I guess people are full of contradictions like that. For sure. I mean, what makes the show so rewarding, I think is just the, the writing allows you to live with these contradictions in these characters. Yes. Because even he, in his imperial majesty, is not perfect, and even by even by his own standards, is what I'm saying. You know, like there, there is there is a, a streak of cowardice that runs through him, that is a, at least as much of an explanation as to why he's ordering this retreat from the world as anything else. You know, I think he does not 
he's afraid of being cared for. He's afraid of being loved. And so why would you want to become like the world's most popular guy? Like, right. why would you want that job if you're him? You don't. So you sabotage it. Right. Of course. And and he's performing the, the archetypal act of any abandoned child, which is to reject people before they can reject him. Mm-hmm. Cause he, he also has like, he has a surrogate mother figure in sister Mary, who's played by Diane Keaton. Man, and he she is this, so good at that series. She really is. I wish she had come back from, from the new Pope. That was a real, me too. That I was, was a real bummer. I was devastated that she didn't. Yeah. And then he has a surrogate father figure in Cardinal Spencer played by James Cromwell. Also probably doing the best work of his incredible career. Yeah. 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 <laughs> You'll be a terrible Pope. The worst. The worst. <laughs> <laughs> what an incredible line. Yes. Again, there's like, 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 you know, you cut that out and you put it in a trailer and it sounds ridiculous. You right, know, it's, it's, it's silly. Yeah. The, but this, he, uh, I mean, like anything that wants to touch something really sublime, the young Pope is unafraid of silliness. Right. And it's it's willing to fly extremely close to that sun in order to to show something real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, from the casting on down, you know, and as, as I was kind of alluding to before, you know, they actually have his character tell another character, I know, I'm extremely handsome. Yes. Which is just one of these, like, the show is so full of these moments that just make you clap like you're just like that is so like in reviewing what i had written about this episode i saw like i I, it moved me to tears of joy and delight and and just of being thrilled to be bearing witness to something so ambitious and skillfully made and uncompromising and as you said willing to be both silly and sublime uh, in the same 15 minute stretch. It's don't take this the wrong way. Listeners. I still hate fun. We (laughs) both hate fun here, Yes, but this is a joyous show in a way that I think very few things could ever come close to. Mm -hmm. It's a show that really, wants to put you face to face with the most profound soul shattering beauty it can conjure and then make no moral or eschatological judgment around it. Just leave you with that experience. And as, as bitterly critical of Catholicism as it is, it never stoops to stripping away the incredible beauty that is sewn into the fabric of the church's practices. I mean, if you can show me someone who can make it through the scene where Spencer's faith has been broken and one of his fellow Cardinals lifts the weight of God for him, if you can make it through that without crying, I don't think I want to talk to you. <laughs> yeah. Or the, the, the truly extraordinary late season arc about child abuse. Oh my fucking God. 
and the whole character of Monsignor Gutierrez, who's you know who, who who's this kind of lower-ranking alcoholic priest that's associated with the Vatican that becomes the Pope's kind of confidant, and he, he is the person who's sent to deal with this crisis in in New York, and that episode. For a million different reasons. I mean, it goes in so many directions again, but they're just all. And that episode starts with this incredible. Um, the camera is doing these revolutions in one of the Vatican's chapels as James Cromwell and Jude Law debate abortion. And it's like. To write dialogue that crackling and to get performances like that out of this, what could so easily be like plotting and moralistic. And then immediately to cut to this like almost noir mystery where Javier Camara, the actor who plays Gutierrez is, is trying to expose this corrupt archbishop in New York. Just the, the range is astonishing. It, and it, and it, it keeps, there's really kind of almost no limit to it. Like it, it, what it can do in the space of one episode, let alone in the space of 10 is just unbelievable. Like I just keep thinking of scenes even from this one episode with the address to the college of the Cardinals. Like, in my mind, that sequence had taken on such power that it kind of overwhelmed everything else in the show. But, you know, there's the kangaroo thing. There's um, a flower blooming in front of Esther, this woman who sort of becomes obsessed with him, who I think he's trying to help conceive through prayer. There's the final scene where they approach this sort of heretical healer like you know him and all his like top cardinal guys show up in his little apartment and say like they they've they've come to see him because he've he's been busting their balls yeah <laughs> and like that's where it ends you know and it's like the it's so it's just stuffed with stuff like that's just yeah it it has the hallmark of all great shows which is that it never does the bare minimum yeah it is, it is, I've been doing a rewatch of The Sopranos and, you know, one of the things that impresses me the most about that show going back over it is how much it can pack in an episode without ever feeling, what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of la- laden down with stuff. It It is always a breeze to watch. Yeah. I mean, The Sopranos is, is when you get right down to it, fairly plotless and is largely tied up in sort of the, the authenticity of the character's screen presences. David Chase has so much trust in both his performers and his audiences. A lot of the jokes on The Sopranos, and The Sopranos is fucking chock full of jokes, aren't even really jokes. It's just having someone say something and then another person looks at them or says something in response 
and the humor emerges from expressions and tone and ignorance and malaprops. Like it's, it's incredibly sophisticated. Yeah, it was, it was basically the funniest show on television for the duration of its run. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. When I think about Tony Soprano screaming, it's like a resort at Captain Teebs. <laughs> Some captain who owns luxury hotels. I don't know. <laughs> and I think that, you know, um, obviously there are a lot of characters on The Sopranos that were stupid. Yeah. And that's a source of humor. But I don't, it only, it really only condescends to their moral failings and not, not the fact that he doesn't know what he's talking about sometimes. I never got the sense that the Sopranos was like laughing at lack of education or anything. Right. Right. Lack of just curiosity about the world and one's place in it. Right. Because they're, they're fundamentally lazy and parasitic. Right. Right. And that's, and in a lot of ways, I mean, there's a, a weird parallel between the Sopranos and the young Pope, which is that it's about, class of useless parasitic Italian men. <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe I laughed a little too hard at that one. I don't know. Um, but yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, they have, you know, Chase was not Catholic, which is always a, a source of endless fascination to me. Wow. That's um, so interesting. I, yeah. I would have assumed immediately that he was. Of course. Right. Of course. I mean, why wouldn't you, but yeah, no, he was, he was Protestant. But he was Italian, and so I think he absorbed a lot of that stuff through osmosis in the same way that, like, I always say, growing up where I grew up on Long Island, there's a certain amount of Italianness and Jewishness that you absorb as an Irish person on Long Island. And I think probably the reverse is true in every, you know, in all the other directions that you can go with that. And so I think he just absorbed, you know, just by being part of that culture in a, in an ethnic sense, the religious aspect of it kind of came bled through too, you know? So it's interesting to contrast the two shows, you know, because, because I think in a, in a weird, no, I don't know if we want to go. Yeah. Why the hell not? It's our podcast. We can do whatever the hell we want with it. Um, you know, the Sopranos kind of goes in a similar direction to the young Pope with the character of, of all people, Pauly Walnuts, who has supernatural experiences yes, with a religious. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, which, which happens very early on. Like the thing with the, the seance that's in season, season two. two, I think. Yep. And that's inarguable that this, the, the, um, the medium has information about people that Paulie has killed, that there is no way for him to have done a cold reading to get, you know? Yeah. It's it, not it would written, be totally he's, impossible. Yeah, I mean, he's also not written as a cold reading medium. He's kind of written as like a a Hollywood idea of a medium. He's not. He's not John Edward or whatever, right. or the the but Long we Island. We do. Medium. We do see him employing common leading questions with the clients that he talks to before Polly. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And then uh, with Polly, he touches something genuine almost immediately. Mm-hmm. But I think with Polly it's almost always a source of terror yeah, and not comfort or awe or 
sensuality, like we keep saying, or, or really any of the other aspects of Catholicism that the young Pope is so good at depicting and, and exploring in a way that doesn't let Catholicism off the hook for its, its thousands of years of... Right, basically uh, endless list of crimes. Preying upon the world, right, exactly, yeah. Yeah, Polly is... is in some ways, I think that Polly is a very honest character and that he knows he's a piece of shit in a way mm-hmm. that even like Tony wouldn't, wouldn't admit when you press Tony, he says like, well, I'm not going to hell that's for Hitler and Pol Pot and, you know, child molesters. Right. But I think Polly knows he's going to hell. Although he can be 6,000 years in purgatory standing on his head as he points out. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and he's filled with terror about it. And yeah. that anxiety is like the outward manifestation of everything that he's repressed about how he makes his living. Mm-hmm. And so when he sees the face of the mother of God in the strip club where he, you know, fucks whores and plans crimes and beats other men to a pulp, he's face to face with himself. Yeah. He can no longer turn his back on the very real threat of damnation. Mm -hmm. And you're right. There is, there is a real commonality in the way that uh, the Sopranos and the young Pope handle the supernatural in that it's both incontrovertible that it's real and also that it, just out of pure necessity must fold into the regular course of human life. Right. Yeah. You have to keep living after the miracle happens. The book Mm -hmm. does not end. And so eventually you can make up a lie about it to yourself or you can become obsessed with it or any number of things that we see happen on the young Pope. And I, I have to say that I think, you know, trying to step back from myself and look at this, look at this objectively. This was all a very hard sell for me. Yeah. Um, you know, I was raised Catholic and uh, the experience was extremely bitter. Um, both my childhood pastor and he wasn't at the time, but he took over my high school just after I graduated, but he was a priest at my high school. Uh, they were both child molesters. And I really don't, find a lot of value in my Catholic upbringing or education at all. I haven't raised my my kid that way. So, you know, for a show to take Catholicism uh, seriously and not just like completely just curb stomp it all, you know, like uh, that's not necessarily something that would be appealing to me right away, but it really kind of overwhelmed my defenses almost immediately. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I feel the same. I, I wasn't raised Catholic, but I was raised in a very intense religious environment that was just a god-awful, horrible experience for me, especially as a, a little faggot. And so I, I am usually pretty resistant to anything overtly religious. And the young Pope had me pretty much from the word go. There's such an enormous charm to this show. And I think a big part of it is that it, like you said, it makes no attempt to 
let Catholicism off the hook or to make a case for Catholicism. All that it does is show you everything that Catholicism is. Right. And some of what Catholicism is, is incontrovertibly staggering and awe-inspiring and beautiful. And unfortunately that is all in service to evil. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. Even, even the kindness and love that you could find from individual Catholic priests and officials is all in service to making people suffer. And the show is so honest about that. And that, that I think is more than anything, what I find so incredible about this scene where he comes before this group of incredibly powerful people and tells them how to torture their followers. Because in the context of the show, the, the mystery that he's peddling with a, with a capital M is real. Right. It's, a, it's not an empty prize. He's, he's really positioning a path to God and it's terrifying and, and awful. And why would you ever do that to yourself? It really yeah, throws I mean, that kind of organized religion into a, a harsh light because of course, modern Catholicism is so often riddled with, with theological compromises pretty invariably um, to the point where you could be forgiven for mistaking it for the church of England in a lot of, a lot of situations. And to have that all rolled back at once is such culture shock. Yeah. As, as we just learned. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> <sighs> Yeah, it's amazing the grip Catholicism has on America, a country where basically no one is Catholic anymore. Yeah, except the cultists on the Supreme Court. Someone put it like, I think it was probably Leslie Lee, what what happened and is happening in America is there's zero difference between it. And if, let's say, there there had been a 50-year project by the Church of Scientology to take over the federal judiciary... And then they did, and the first thing they did was ban psychiatry. Like, there's no difference. No, there isn't. Man, Leslie's great. Yeah. Yeah. He's a good egg. I will say that... uh, You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I do think that the one experience that it excises, and probably wisely from... Uh, the experience of Catholicism that people might know is tedium. <laughs> Which is good, I think. You know, I mean, yes. m- my experience with with the Catholic Church is, of course, you know, hours spent on every Sunday for my entire childhood and adolescence, being bored in church, and then going to a Catholic high school and being intensely bored by and just be and and not like tedium beyond boredom, tedium. To, to the point of like actual agony in a yes. way, you know? No, this like was I, my experience of, of organized religion as well. I spent every Sunday in Sunday school. I went to programs with a bunch of other religious families and my every memory of it is just like anguish. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to fucking die. <laughs> right. Yeah, I remember, I remember having a conversation at like our last lunch period as seniors 
with the other guys at my lunch table and just being like, you know, if I woke up tomorrow as a freshman, I'd kill myself. Like I could never, I could not do this. And it's not that I had like a particularly awful adolescence. Um, you know, it was probably no better and no worse than a lot of people's. It was probably better than a lot of people's in a lot of ways. Um, but it was just so the prospect of going through all that again in that environment, I just couldn't, I couldn't even imagine it. You know, once I, yeah, it was unbearable. Once I got through it, I was through it. But like to go back again was an absolute nightmare. And, you know, I, I think it's probably, you know, Sorrentino does not strike me as a director that traffics much in tedium. No, uh, there, I mean, there are a few scenes like, uh, Pius reading a homily to a nearly empty square full of people who are just kind of marking time, fanning right. themselves. But by and large, I don't think he's very interested in TDM. And I'm obviously by its nature, TDM is, is complicated to make interesting in film. Yeah. Which it, it does represent an interesting omission because the, the secret second premise of the young pope is not just what if catholicism was right but what if catholicism was interesting <laughs> right exactly <laughs> um and, and you can I, I don't think we're alone in having considered our religious upbringings just unbelievably gruelingly boring and stupid right right and you know the the boredom and 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 the grueling boredom is a lot of times part of the point of religious uh experience you know and uh, you know it's it's not an accident um you know in some cases it is you know i think probably all things considered the roman catholic church would prefer children not to be bored to tears every sunday if they could you know then they just don't know what to do um but like i'm thinking back to the the little house on the prairie episode that we discussed he builds this altar of stones and like that wasn't fun that was hard work, but it was purgative. And this, and I think it goes back to what you were saying about the show being just such a joyful experience. You know, this it is really this fist pumping, like clapping. You know, as I said, I cried tears of just pure delight and joy watching this thing. And even relative to the other shows that I would rank up as high as I rank the Young Pope and the New Pope, you know, you're talking. The Sopranos and Twin Peaks and Mad Men and Deadwood, basically for me, and maybe Too Old to Die Young, like all of them can be much more depressing and uh, unpleasant, and yes, at times like tedious. And and I think this, the address to the College of Cardinals is like a demonstration of how exciting it can make just a guy talking and saying things that you find abhorrent. It's not a miserable experience. No, it's, it's not like, at all. Yeah. He yeah. has that line close to the beginning of the monologue. Mm -hmm. Only the church possesses the charisma of truth, which is his, his, I think that's a quote by St. Ignatius and right. he's using it as his justification for forcing people to come to the church instead of the church reaching out to them. And you can parallel it to the, the structure and nature of the show itself, where we're enduring Jude Law's incredible unpleasantness, his 
monstrosity as this fictional person because he is offering us a window into this world we could not otherwise experience. It's the structure of the show is, is mirroring the eschatology that he's laying out. And our experience is the experience of the Catholics that he wants to overawe. Yeah, that's really well put. Yeah. Yeah, we're bold. Like, it's a real challenge for this scene because there are no, like, how can you relate to any of these men? You know, I mean, Dussolier has, has an interesting life in his own way, but he's like a rank hypocrite and he's relatively normal, you know, and relatively young compared to most of the other Cardinals. But like, you can't really relate to these guys, certainly not in their, like their bright red finery in the Sistine Chapel, listening to this berserk emperor give a speech. Right. It's a very alienating scene. And in, in right. fact, I think Sorrentino plays a lot with the sort of sea of faces of the Cardinals. Yes. Yeah. Which is tremendously interesting. He does, he does so much with that because they do look very forbidding and unapproachable. And mm-hmm. one thing that I loved rewatching I loved watching these characters be confronted maybe for the first times in their religious lives with someone who really, really believes in the truth of what they spend their lives promulgating and with the possibility that they might have to endure the consequences of of their own hypocrisy and failure. Right. You know, when yeah. they when they look at that golden door, there's real fear on some faces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's I mean, it's it's the tweet, you know, me sewing. haha, fuck. Yeah, yes. Me reaping. Well, this <laughs> fucking sucks. What the fuck? <laughs> you know? Yeah, and, that, and, that's exactly it. And that's what I was trying to get at is that, like, for this moment and in 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 these minutes as they're listening to this man, they cardinals in the roman catholic church are feeling as overawed and overwhelmed and frightened and terrified as as we would be right as they make us feel when they get up on the pulpit and tell us how we're going to hell there you go there it is man what a show Mm -hmm. it really is something should we wrap there you know what yeah let's Let's quit while we're ahead, just like just like he does. It's a short speech. He doesn't ramble on forever. Exactly. Yeah. Short and sweet. Yeah. All well, right. Thank you. Thank you very much, everybody, for rejoining us here on Cut to Black. It's great to be back. Yeah, hopefully and we'll be able to uh keep the flow moving a little more regularly. I am not on deadline crunch, so I'm much more available. I'm always available. I'm always here. I love it. Let's record yeah. uh let's record next week or the week after. Let's do it. Hot damn. All right. And if we don't do it, I'm cutting this part out of the <laughs> recording so no one will ever hear it. That's a good idea. <laughs> okay. All right, everybody. Uh I have been Sean T. Collins. And I have been Gretchen Felker Martin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>